I just love that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's become especially meaningful to me in the absence of those who we have grown deeply to love. How deep the Father's love for us, so deep that it's the very ground of our being, whose presence is always with us. And in the absence of those we love, it can become all the more real and all the more deep and all the more nourishing and all the more comforting. If you turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, that's where we find out about some of this. You know, one of the advantages of living up in Summit County and being surrounded by all these mountains, by these 14ers, as Julie and I were for 12 years or so, the advantage of that is that it's kind of like being in the arms of the Father. Because according to the scripture, mountains are like God. We're going to see today that you don't have to be in the mountains to experience this. And that it can become all the more real during pandemics like the coronavirus. Because his is truly like this mountainous presence that is all around us. Which we'll see today is good to know you know, in the chaos that can surround us in this world. And we're going to see today that the same is true with earthly fathers when it comes to the difference they make. Mountains don't have uh, to say anything, really, to have kind of a stabilizing effect we found up there in Summit County. You might say that it's all in their being, Many women are wired for speaking. They're hardwired to communicate in a way that most men, most fathers couldn't even begin to approach, and it is a great gift. We can't begin to approach that sometimes, but that's okay because he has wired us just to be. To be present in a way that most women couldn't even begin to approach. Just ask any single mother, you know, on a dark night alone at home about the difference that a man's, just a man's presence makes. Just what is the difference? Well, here's a Father's Day letter from an eight-year-old boy who I knew well. Dear Dad, you don't know how much you mean to me. Like when you come into the house and the warmth and kindness that flows around you that I can sense even before you come into the door. You're like a house that I come to for protection. A loving father is all I could ask for. And then he finishes, I have so much more to tell you, but I'll have to tell you next year. He's out and about doing other things. We do take for granted the presence a dad makes, but kids thrive in it. Though you only hear about it once a year, if that. They have so much more to tell us, but they're too busy living and playing in, in the secure environment that our presence brings. What we're going to be talking about today is all over the place in the Bible. It's what David most appreciated about God the Father. He said, the Lord of hosts is with us. Psalm 46, 11. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. 
One of my favorites, Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. He's not talking about God's performance. No, he's talking about just God's presence. Another of my favorites, Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God, a famous one, is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is the one thing that Paul highlighted about God the Father in Ephesians 3, that he, it, there is one God and Father of all, and what's the most important thing about him? Who is over all and in and through all in all. Which is why that little eight-year-old highlighted the same thing. You're like a house that I come to for protection. You're a good, good father. You tell me that you're pleased and I am not ever alone. What difference does a father make? We see the same thing in Exodus 33, which is our passage for today. I find it interesting that in Deuteronomy 33, it says that famous verse, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And in Exodus 33, he tells us how the children of Israel learned this lesson. How they came to appreciate this truth that the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms and how we too can come more to appreciate it and thrive in it no matter what's going on in the chaos around us. The lesson really began a chapter earlier in chapter 32, verse 1, with the incident of the golden calf, where they told Aaron to make a God for us who will go before us. Up until then, Moses um, had gone before them. Up until he left them and went up to the mountain, as you all know, and he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he was gone, it says that Aaron, he asked Aaron, they asked Aaron to make a God for us who will go before us, who will go up in our midst for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And you know, God the, God the Father is thinking, you need a God? What about me? What am I, duck soup? Totally took him for granted, just like we do sometimes. They had forgotten that God himself had been going up in their midst, that he was the one who had brought him up from uh, the land of Egypt. They'd, they'd been taking his presence for granted. And so he went on to teach them a lesson that they would never forget. He said in Exodus 33:3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. This was after the golden calf. And I will not go up among you, for you are a stiff-necked people. And get this, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They were no longer taking his presence for granted. Moses prayed for the people three times until God the Father said to Moses in, in verse 14, my, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. There's much more here, but he taught them a lesson they'd never forget, at least some of them. A lesson that we need to learn as men and that uh, our families maybe need to learn. And that is our presence, just our presence, makes a world of difference. The bottom line of what your family needs from you is just you. Without your presence, it is truly disastrous, just like it was for the children of Israel. It was the essential uh, role of God the Father in the minds of the children of Israel. It was the, what you call the sine qua non, the without which you have nothing. It's the promise that brings 
to us all of his other attributes that my presence shall go with you. And under it all, no matter what's going on around you, I can give you rest. At the thought of his absence, it says, they went into mourning and took off all their ornaments. Moses himself became like this frightened little child. He said, if your presence does not go with us, verse 15, do not lead us up from here. We're lost without you. That is, we'd rather suffer in the wilderness. We would rather die anywhere than face life without you here. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up for here. For how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It's the sign of a father's favor on his family. For how can it not be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, just being with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the people who are on the face of the earth? You know, fathers, at, at very deep levels, deeper than you're even aware, your presence makes your family feel distinguished from all other people. They're not lost in the mass. Distinguished and favored. At a very deep level, you give them their identity, their security, their, 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 their bravery without which they, they'll, they'll shrink back into fear. Just talk to your wife about what happens when you're gone, when all of a sudden there's this great absence, and she checks whether the door is locked two or three times sometimes. And you're as big as God in a child's eyes, or whether you're a father or a grandfather. You're the only one in the world who can fill their void. The one word they chose to describe what his absence would mean in the Bible is disaster. And this is so true, looking at the disaster that's come over uh, so many in our country and over our, uh, our country itself. Truly, it spells disaster. It's well documented in school records, uh, in divorce courts, in penal institutions, in the welfare system. Scores of social ills have been linked to the lack of a strong fatherly presence in the home. All the way from poor academic performance to increased truancy to poverty to welfare dependence to juvenile violence to gang violence to imprisonment. In fact, get this. When a father is an active Christian, his children are five times more likely to become Christians than when only the mother is a believer. There is a 75% conversion rate when dad is a Christian compared to 15% when the mother alone is a Christian. Does your presence make a difference or what? One researcher put it this way, and I love this. The most bumbling, inarticulate, tongue-tied, shy, introverted father is skyscrapers above the most educated, experienced, polished, cool youth director. There is simply no one in the world who can have the influence of a natural father. Absolutely, positively no one. Not any friend, not any professional, not any guardian, nothing, absolutely nothing has the potential for impacting a child's life more than the presence of a father. So take heart, men. You are making a difference. 
Yeah, I know. I think about all the things I'm not doing. We tend to get down on men a lot that they don't live up to certain standards. But you're making a difference more than you know. And you, you, uh, and you did make a difference if your kids are now grown. There's just something about the physical, emotional presence of a father that gives life to a child. Masculine life. Watching him shave, you know, hearing him laugh, touching his flesh, just being around dad. Invests uh, 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 the child with uh, something that's, that, that's very deep. With, with, with like these large doses of male energy. And this emotional capital cannot be gained anywhere else but in the presence of a father. Another researcher sums it up this way. There is something almost magical about the presence of a stable and functional father in a child's life. When dad is not there, there as in living there in the same home, something deep in a child's psyche perceives a critical deficit, a desperate and frightening imbalance that often preys on the child's particular vulnerabilities, causing him to careen off into unhealthy extremes, causing him to drift or hurt. But in the face of all that, in our society, it is open season on men and masculinity and patriarchy. Go figure. Not surprisingly, we have it on good authority. It spells disaster. Wendell Berry summed it up in a novel that I really recommend reading called Hannah Coulter. It's a journal of a woman who lived in a farming community back in the day when we were basically a rural nation, when the silent, you know, farmer types were the backbone of our nation. Just like it used to be in the nation of Israel. They were an agrarian farming society, just like some of you may have come from. Hannah talked about her husband, Nathan, who uh, had come back from the war from World War uh, II, along with the others who fought with them in a day when men and masculinity were appreciated far more. She said, of what Nathan, my husband, had actually known and done and suffered in the fighting, I knew nothing. Nathan was not the only one who was in it, who survived it and came home from it and did not talk about it. There were several people from Port, Fort Williams who went through and fought and came home and lived to be old men here whose memories contained in silence the furthest distances of the world, terrible sights, terrible sufferings. Some of them were heroes, and they said not a word. And here it is. They stood among us like monuments without inscriptions. stabilizing a whole society. I just love that. Only a man can stand in that way. And we see that once our fathers are gone, that they stood among us. I sure felt that when my dad died and I was a pastor 45 years old. I became like a blubbering baby. I saw it when he passed, that he stood among us like a monument without inscriptions. They may not say much. 
but that doesn't matter. This is from an article titled, titled, Why I Couldn't Write the Top Ten Rules for New Fathers. You'll probably add your amen to this. He said, in the past year, almost four million babies were born in America, which means a lot of new fathers were born, making this their first Father's Day. So I wanted to share some lessons from 25 years on the job. I knew guys like rules, so I tried writing the top 10 rules for new fathers. We men love top 10 lists too, so that would have been a coup. But I didn't get very far. I also looked at compiling a list of 10 axioms from sports and business that might be instructive, but also that turned out to be a fool's errand. We're told we're supposed to set goals, create a strategy or action plan, work hard. It's all wrong. In some ways, fatherhood is the least goal-oriented enterprise you've ever embarked on. It is not about outcomes. It is about process. And here it is. Fatherhood is the art of being there. It all comes from that. A walk to a coffee shop down the street is not a walk to the coffee shop. You may never get there. The walk may become the discovery of grass or adventures of a large truck parked across the street or, in the case of my son Zach, when he was 18 months old, the joy of collecting cigarette butts. But it's your presence that does it all. So throw away the lists, at least by comparison to this. So as Jerry began by saying, this can be a hard day for some of us. It is for me. I lost two fathers. What if your father wasn't there or isn't here any longer? Or maybe they were there, but not in the way they should have been. You know, I was ski mountaineering with a friend one Father's Day uh, a few years ago. Up in Summit County, the snow sometimes stays till July. And so on Father's Day, we were skinning up uh, uh, the mountain on fresh snow, talking about fathers and the difference they make. We were about halfway up when my friend, uh, Tim Morris, looking around him, said, we've got to remember, though, that all is not lost if your father's not there. And he went on to tell me something I didn't know, though I knew him well for many years, that his dad had lost his father at an early age and, and about how God had brought all these men into his life and he worked it for such a great good and about all the difference that made in his life. And I was looking around too and I was uh, you know, taking in the, the mountainous presence of the mountains that were all around us and I said, yeah, and I talked about how I lost my father at the age of six and how God the Father had come in uh, in his place and about how as one man said to such emptiness such loss and I quoted this to him all as embracing as the sky soft as lion's paws on grass he is drawn we were high up near the continental divide at a basin approaching the snow plume refuge and I looked over at the Argentine mountain where whose sheer face was like towering above us on our left and the other mountains to the east and the west that were ranging from the Argentine mountain in this magisterial silence like, like, like monuments without inscriptions. 
And we talked about how God the Father is like that, how he's like a rock and a fortress all around us, deep within us, so much so that he's the ground of our being. How he's, uh, and about how when your earthly father is dead or distant or dysfunctional or, or maybe divorced, how God the Father can more than fill the emptiness. I know this to be true. And many of you do too. If you know Christ as your Savior, he came fundamentally to bring us to the Father, to bring us to God, as Peter says. If you know Christ as your Savior, that same Father is saying the same to you today as he did to the children of Israel in Exodus 33. And it's not just there, it's all over the place. My presence shall go with you. Just done. Dial down, and I'll give you rest. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Annie Dillard said, mountains are giant, restful, absorbent you can heave your spirit into a mountain and the mountain will keep it folded and not throw it back. Mountains are home. All of which is good to know in the chaos that can surround us because that's who he is. Have you found your home? He's inviting some of you home today. Maybe your dad was absent for whatever reason. Maybe you've been haunted with this great absence all your life, all embracing as the sky. Underneath the facade of being grown up, maybe there's a child in you that's been drifting for a long time. And on top of all that, look what we're going through right now, and there's no end in sight. You may have lost all hope. You feel forsaken. There's a father hunger in you that's too great for anybody to satisfy and you've tried and you've been deeply hurt and disillusioned by people. Well, I'm here to tell you today that there's someone out there who is big enough. A father who's all around you who can halt uh, the drift of any son or any daughter at any time, under any circumstances. Who can satisfy any father's hunger and fill any father's absence forever and ever. Whoever you are, the arms of the earthly father that you had will fall away, whether through Alzheimer's or cancer or normal aging or an, an abnormal upbringing. In one way or another, your father and mother will leave you. Like David said, my father and mother have forsaken me, Psalm 27.10, but he's got an agenda, but the Lord will lift me up. That's his agenda in these things. And I can tell you from my own experience, out of my own emptiness and much brokenness, that there is a mountainous presence, this magisterial silence. A monument without an inscription that is deep within us.
and all around us. How do you connect with him? Well, you need to stop drifting and going and sitting on every lap that will give you warmth or looking for it in people. You need to stop drifting and start settling down. You need to dial down and tune in. Spend time with him in prayerful reflection on his word where he will speak silently to your soul. George MacDonald, who was C.S. Lewis's spiritual father, Lewis didn't have that good a father, he put it this way, if God is so good as you represent him, and if he knows all that we need, and better far than we do ourselves, why should it be necessary to pray, to ask him for anything? I answer, what if God knows that prayer is the thing we need first and foremost? What if the main object of God's idea of prayer be supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? Hunger may drive the runaway child home, and he may or not, may not be fed at once, but he needs his father more than his dinner. Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs. Prayer is that communion, and some need is the motive of that prayer. But that motive, that need, is not what we really need. But it brings us to the answer. Have you found your true home? God says to us, just like he did to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain with me there. And many of you do this. If you haven't found your home, God the Father is saying to you, just believe in my son. He came to lead you to me. He died for your sins so that you could come and confess your sin and believe in him and my presence then will go with you. You'll see. And I will give you rest. This has been God's fundamental agenda through all that has happened around here over the last few years to make room for himself so that you'd look to no one but him. He knows how much we, we need to need him. And we'll not need him if our cup is full without him. These are very basic things. And so he empties our cups. He takes us deeper by making us emptier so we would rest in no one but him. You're a good, good father, we sang it. You call me deeper still in some very difficult ways. But there is no other way because the more of him we know we need, the more of him we'll get to know. Without creating that need in painful ways, we'll not get to know him very deeply. You see, the children of Israel were resting too much in Moses, which briefly will be my uh, final point today. 
We, we do the same thing as they did with Moses. How so? Well, with them, you could tell what they were doing by what they said after God took Moses away. We've already seen it. It's in the first verse of the chapter just before, Exodus 32.1, where they told Aaron to make a God for us who will go before us. Up until then, Moses had gone before them. He'd gone before them until he went up into the mountain. And after he had been there 40 days and 40 nights, again, it says that they asked Aaron to make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Question, Was, was it Moses who brought them up? This man Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, true or false? False, right. Of course it wasn't him. God had brought them up. In fact, he had told them this just a few chapters earlier in Exodus uh, 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God did it, but they didn't get it, at least not for long, because they went on to make a God of a man. You might paraphrase it this way. Moses brought us up. He's gone now, so now we need another God to go before us. That's what they were saying. An idol. You see, the the idolatry here did not begin with the golden calf. No, with the golden calf, they just made a new idol to take the place of the old one who had gone up to the mountain. They just substituted one idol for another. Because all along, truth be told, their faith was in Moses and not in God. So they get mad at him and not at God, and he got fed up with it. At one point, it was so hard he wanted to die. Idolatry can be hard on pastors. Again and again, God had said, I, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm the one that brought you up. Cling to me. Cling to him who has done these great and awesome things who brought you up from the land of Egypt. But for all practical purposes, they ended up clinging to Moses. And it happened again and again down through the history of Israel. And there's a, a unique lesson for a church like us who are looking for a senior pastor. Judges 8.22, for example. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Did Gideon deliver them from the hand of Midian? Of course not. God went to pains through just 300 men and not a battle at all to show that it was God's victory. And so Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you and defend you and protect you. It's all over the place. When Israel asked Samuel for a king, it was out of the same mindset of idolizing a man rather than worshiping God. And so God said, they rejected me from being king over them. 1 Samuel 8, 7. Why? Because they wanted a king to go before them. 1 Samuel 8, 20. That we may also be like the nations. And so it is to this day. So often we're no different. To this day, so many churches are looking for the kind of leaders that the nation is looking for, some kind of celebrity who will make our church successful too, who will fill our God-shaped vacuum. And what that means is this, not always, but often, in the name of growth by evangelism, even the name of strong preaching for spiritual growth, many churches are really after numerical growth and for a man to fill their vacuum so they can feel good about life. So he brings us all, churches and Christians alike, he brings us all to places where we have to take off our ornaments. 
so that he will be our all. My fear is that some of you may put on your ornaments only after the new senior pastor comes. Is that what you're feeling like? Because you're looking to him to bring you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the wilderness, rather than resting in the arms that are bearing you up as on eagle's wings to the promised land. My hope is that if you, are, <laughs> if you haven't already put on your ornaments, that you'll do it now, because the only one that matters is already here. He is here as never before because he's reamed us out to fill us up. Right now you can say, dear dad, Abba Father, you don't know how much you mean to me. Like when you come into the house and the warmth and kindness that flows around you that I can sense even before you come into the door. You're like a house that I come to for protection. A loving father is all I could ask for. I've told some of you that I would carry this little boy who wrote that around the house when he was younger. And there in my arms, I'd say to him what the Father is always saying to all of us, whether our fathers are dead or distant or divorced, whether our pastors are here or away. When each of my children was nursing, I'd go through the same uh, ritual every morning. It started with Jordan. I used to bathe him early in the morning so that mommy could sleep in after getting up to nurse him at all those ungodly hours of the night. And I'd dry him off and wrap him up and, and hold him close. And he'd curl up his legs and he'd lay his head uh, on my shoulder. And uh, I'd say the same thing every day as we'd walk around the house in the quiet of the day. I'd say, Daddy loves Jordan when he's happy. Daddy loves Jordan when he's sad. Daddy loves Jordan when he's friendly. Daddy loves Jordan when he's mad. Daddy loves Jordan when he's good. Daddy loves Jordan when he's bad. Daddy loves Jordan, and I just go on and on when he's straying, sleeping, reading, playing, waking, and then I'd say this, Daddy loves Jordan in the daytime. Daddy loves Jordan in the nighttime. Daddy loves Jordan all the time. You know, Jordan couldn't talk yet. He couldn't string together more than two or three words at a time. But more often than not, I'd, I'd hear him say this. When I finished, with his head on my shoulder, he would say two words. Happy. Happy. which is just what we're doing when we say, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. It's what we're doing when we say the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. It's what we're doing when we say, the eternal Father is a dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. It's just like we sing, stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised, 
perfect peace and rest. My mother put it this way in 31 days of praise. Let's close in prayer. Father, how delighted I am to have you as my dwelling place where I can settle down, feel secure, and be content anywhere on earth. You are my blessed home where I can enter and be at rest even when all around me and above me is a sea of trouble. How my soul delights to hide in the secret place of your presence, to take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How blessed I am, my King and my God, for you have chosen me and brought me near to dwell with you. Thank you that, as Moses said, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Amen. You know, there's a song called, one that I love, called The Blessing. It's directly from the heart of the Father, and it's especially for, uh, for us as a church in the absence of a settled pastor. It's for anyone in the absence of an earthly father because he's the father to the fatherless, and he's uh, the father to the pastorless. So let's uh, sing.